What do the next three months hold? What about the next six months, 12 months, 24 months? Uh, What will the new normal look like? These are the questions that we've been dealing with certainly over the last two months on this podcast. I know it's weighing on my mind. I'm sure it's weighing on your mind. I had the great fortune to sit down with Richard Jones. He is the CMO of Cheetah Digital. He works with some of the biggest brands in the world, uh, as well as small businesses. And he's got a really interesting uh, perspective uh, to share uh, about how uh, restaurants, uh, how small businesses can navigate uh, this landscape right now and come out better. The secret he says is all in data. It's about authenticity and getting to know your customers better. Luckily, that's something we do really well in the hospitality industry. Stick around. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. So each week we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. That means doing more covers and driving more revenue. Each week we choose a topic, we pick it apart, we come up with some key insights, and then we always finish up with an assignment, right? I leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing some of the ideas that we talk about here on the show, because as I say each and every week, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, in today's episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Richard Jones. Uh, He's the CMO of Cheetah Digital, which uh, they describe as a cross-channel customer engagement solution provider. So uh, they do everything from acquisition to loyalty. Uh, They've worked with some of the world's biggest brands, including American Express and Hilton and Walgreens and Williams-Sonoma. Most notably, though, he's uh, been helping brands navigate this crisis. Uh, So I guess, uh, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chip. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's my pleasure. I appreciate you carving out the time, uh, certainly at this point, to uh, to be here. So one of the big things uh, I know we want to get to is what small businesses and specifically what uh, restaurants can and should be doing right now to survive the crisis. But uh, but I guess before we get into that, I want to give the listeners uh, a bit of context. So uh, tell them, uh, tell me, if you will, uh, a bit about who you are, uh, where you grew up, where you live now. What brought you to Cheetah Digital? And then uh, I guess explain a little bit about what your company does. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, despite the uh, the accent, I'm actually uh, based out of uh, Denver, uh, Colorado, uh, and have been here for, uh, for almost uh, four years. Um, but my kind of uh, route to, to getting uh, to do what I do today um, has, has come through uh, a entrepreneurial kind of route. So, um, I spent many years um, uh, in in sales primarily uh, after um, switching from uh, from a marketing agency into enterprise tech sales, um, and then about ten years ago, I uh, I took the uh, somewhat foolhardy step, some might say, to uh, to take the a leap of faith and set up a, a company. And you know, I, I joke, I jest. It was um, it was a fantastic experience and, and one that. Um, you know, I feel very privileged to have been able to, to do, but um, we uh, we set up with a, a couple of colleagues, um, uh, a company that was uh, 
called Engage Sciences out of the UK and then was later um, you know, kind of merged with another company and rebranded as, as Weigh-In, uh, which we sold to Cheetah Digital uh, in, the, uh, in the summer. Uh, and I've been the CMO uh, of Cheetah Digital uh, ever since. Um, but the company that we set up was um, was 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 very simple in its uh, in what it was trying to do, and that it was it was trying to provide a platform to help um, marketers of companies of all different size um, run interactive experiences that allowed them to capture names into their marketing database and then learn more about those people that they've captured into their uh, marketing database. Uh, over time so that they could trigger personalized marketing on email uh, and other channels. Um, and so the sorts of interactive experiences that um, our customers were using was everything from kind of running simple kind of competitions and sweepstakes and quizzes and surveys to challenges and kind of product recommendation, uh, recommendation experiences, you know, all manner of different ways to basically um, provide that direct relationship to uh, consumers, um, and you know, to give you kind of a sense of of the scale of of what we achieved in the end, um, was we uh, now uh, capture around sort of seven uh, hundred million names into the database for our customers uh, on an annual uh, basis. Um, so you know, significant net new names, uh, and you know, over the you know, over the years, that's two billion uh, plus. You know, we obviously scaled up, um, you know, starting small ten years ago to getting to the volumes that we're doing uh, today. Um, and that's it's a kind of an interesting thing because if you think about it, um, uh, now at Cheetah Digital, my uh, my my chairman uh, Peter McCormick uh, was actually the founder of Exact Target, which was an email marketing platform that was then sold. Uh, to um, Salesforce and is basically the heart of the Salesforce marketing cloud, and you know they'd set up, uh, you know, been doing it for longer than 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 than, than I had, and started obviously quite a bit earlier at Exact Target in the um, in the in the in the nineties, um, and um, they basically uh, were, were talking about their early stages of kind of how they would do data acquisition was to convince you know the small businesses that were using the Exact Target platform to you know put a uh, a fishbowl on the counter and have people drop in their business cards. The old days. Yeah, exactly. The old days. And obviously we've just take, taken, you know, that kind of model of, of you know, how are you going to get people to, to give you their, their business card info, if you like, and, and put that to a digital uh, uh, kind of channel. So that was the, the sort of circuitous route to getting to be the CMO of Cheetah Digital, which is uh, the largest um, uh, independent uh, marketing software provider in, in the world now with uh, offices in in 14 countries uh, which uh, which is uh, which is great that's quite a that's quite a background and uh, I think it puts you in a unique position to uh, to certainly have this uh, conversation um, one of the things that I think is interesting is that you've worked with some big companies certainly you know like I was talking about in the intro um, but you also work with uh, with smaller companies right you work with companies kind of you know, along the entire spectrum. We do, yes, we do, and and actually, that's been part and parcel of kind of what engaged sciences uh, slash way in uh, was all about. You know, at the end of the day, the the technology um, was was uh, pretty self-explanatory, and so with a bit of training, 
you know, um, marketing organizations of, of any size um, were able to adopt the platform and, and run experiences and, and, and get value uh, to, to build out their database. Um, and, you know, that hasn't changed over the last 10 years. Probably what has changed is the importance of building out an email marketing database uh, versus other tactics one might have as a, as a business owner to um, you know acquire new customers and drive uh, traffic into into restaurants right and, and what, what I mean by other tactics is primarily this kind of uh, tension between uh, using Facebook and Google to drive traffic versus perhaps going and building out your own marketing database and uh, putting in loyalty programs and and, and, and kind of really driving a, a direct to customer relationship versus um, you know, buying uh, uh, ads and doing personalized ads on on channels like Facebook and Google. That's the big thing that's changed over the last ten years. Right. So here's the thing that uh, it's heartbreaking. I mean, the irony of it is um, is so clear to me. Right. Is that you talked about the uh, in the old days, right? Putting the uh, the business cards in the fishbowl. Is that these kind of tactics were were small town, small business, you know, community driven tactics, just as a way of getting to know your your community better right getting to know who are the people that are that are eating in our restaurants um and as these tactics now have moved uh into the digital platform right and where it's now easier uh more cost effective and you know on and on and on it's, it's just easier to do that easier um to get to know your your people than ever before um small businesses at least in my experience have kind of ignored it all um or feel like they're in over their head, and now all these tactics uh, are becoming for bigger companies, right? Now, bigger companies uh, are seeing the benefit of um, of getting to know their client base, right? This, you know, this customer centric um, model, um, and and small businesses, I find a lot of them are getting uh, left in the dust. Are you finding that, or or no? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an interesting um, uh, point of view actually, because it depends on. The, uh, the the type of small business. So we have seen examples of small businesses that, <laughs> that have been very, very connect, uh, uh, committed to building direct relationships with their customers. And and actually many large businesses um, could actually take a leaf out of their, their book. I mean, obviously it's not uniform, but we've certainly seen that across our customer base. What's probably um, uh, the bigger shift is in large businesses. I think large businesses had primarily pretty much um, ignored getting to know their own customers, comparatively speaking, compared to the amount of effort, money uh, that they were putting into uh, doing hyper-personalized advertising on things like uh, Facebook and Google um, for the majority of the last 10 years. Um, whereas 20 years ago, big businesses were all about getting direct, you know, getting direct relationships, learning about customers, um, you know, sending out on the back of, you know, uh, your 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 packet of Cheerios. You'll have the 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 you know, cut out this form, send it in, answer these questions, uh, you know, for a chance to win stuff. I mean, that was P and Procter and Gamble were were living off of um, the, the information they learned they learned about consumers from a whole variety of different kind of tactics around promotions and surveys and that type of stuff. That was that was what drove the company and made P&G what it was um, uh, if you go back 20, 30 years ago. I think what's different is that Facebook pioneered this era of, hey, guys, you don't need to know who your customers are. 
you know, we know who your customers are. Right. Just give us, uh, you know, your 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 money, and we will allow you to, um, you know, connect with uh, a very large group of uh, customers in a in a hyper personalized way. And that was that was the promise of Facebook and, and, and Google to, to to a large extent as well. Right. Um, that actually meant that people didn't need to build out their own customer data databases and didn't need to concentrate on loyalty programs and things. I think what we've what we've seen in the last um, eighteen months, in particular, is that house of cards start to um, interestingly break down. And and the reason why I call it house of cards is because the ability to deliver high personalized advertising at scale requires an era of very fast and loose controls on on consumer data. When that breaks down, which it has because of what's happened around privacy. Um, the whole uh, advertising ad tech model that we've been living in for the last 10 years um, has had its foundations kind of ripped from underneath it. And so we're, we're, we're seeing big businesses now have to accelerate um, tactics to build out their own customer database, put in their own loyalty programs in order to have that direct relationship with consumers so they're not exposed uh, as much to all the changes around privacy that right. they might have been if they were too reliant on just you know getting to to communicate with customers through Facebook and Google uh, as their kind of main channel. So then, uh, I, I mean, I think it's a. I'm always fascinated in the the cultural shifts that were uh, either going through or about to go through. I, I'm always. I mean, that's what you do in marketing, right? So much of it is you're trying to predict behavior and. Um, obviously, you have a, an interesting perspective and opinions on the matter uh, and what you guys do, again, in terms of, you know, list building, um, you know, maintaining uh, correspondence or maintaining relationships uh, with an engaged list and then loyalty and all that. So talk to me about what you are doing uh, and why it works. And um, and then let's use that to kind of pivot into a conversation about uh, about this crisis and, and what people are doing and not doing. Yeah, you know, great, great, uh, great idea. So let, let me let me step back a little bit um, in order to answer that question and and just look at um, what's the evolution of consumer attitudes um, and where are they now, which I think is important um, because the situation that a lot of restaurant um, uh, uh, owners and uh, groups are finding themselves in uh, with COVID nineteen. Um, you know, COVID nineteen hasn't didn't happen in a vacuum. You know, there was already a whole set a whole set of um, uh, things that were happening in terms of marketing and ad tech disruption and the evolution of consumer attitudes, which uh, business owners need to be uh, aware of because it's going to impact the decisions they make on how they actually um, accelerate the out of the recovery period as lockdowns ease. Um, and you know, to help us get a handle on kind of those those consumer attitudes, um, at Cheetah Digital, we commissioned um, a six-country piece of research with uh, e-consultancy uh, to look at uh, to basically what was uh, happening around consumer attitudes and their changes. And what we saw is that attitudes around privacy, which had been changing and evolving, and I mean consumer attitudes around privacy had been changing and, and, and evolving ever since the kind of Cambridge Analytica scandal hit and, you know, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg getting hauled up in front of Congress and, you know, everything that has spun out from there, um, I think is worth kind of touching on because the research that we did, which, you know, February and March in most markets was, was 
uh, if not under lockdown, it was in the shadow of the looming COVID-19 health crisis. And so I think it's very, very relevant research. And actually what we saw is that um, uh, consumers are actually turned off um, uh, ads, which are too personalized from um, uh, any marketer or any brand uh, where there isn't actually a direct relationship with that brand already. So therefore, if the consumer feels that the ad is kind of, kind of being personalized to them yet there is no relationship with that brand it's kind of creepy right yeah <laughs> uh, we've all we've all kind of felt that and actually um 39 of u.s consumers don't like personalized ads that are driven from kind of this cookie data which is you know or third-party data which is um you know which which consumers that fairly snoopy uh, it's kind of you know a bit creepy and it's snooping on them so you know from an instant from a, a kind of consideration of like all right if i'm going to if I weren't going to do my ads and I'm going to make them personalized by buying data or, 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 or having it driven from, from, from what I'm gathering from cookies, that can actually backfire. And, and I, I would argue that 39, 40% of consumers finding it creepy is a tactic that you probably want to steer away from. Right. Um, or at least consider how you do it in a way that isn't going to have you kind of lumped into that kind of creepy bucket. I love there being a creepy bucket. Well, you know, unfortunately, I'd say that 99% of marketers fall into that creepy bucket in terms of the way we've all been acting over the last 10 years. And it's it's only in the last year that people are starting to wear the white hat, I think, and uh, and, 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 and think about kind of manners on on how you do digital, digital advertising. Um, the other thing that we saw is that 70% of consumers don't trust social media platforms with their data. And this is in the US uh, because of privacy issues. So there's massive distrust of things like um, Facebook and Google over, over data. And that is reflected in the amount of consumers that have installed an ad block, uh, blocker. About 30% of our respondents have already installed an ad blocker. 37% of US consumers regularly delete their cookies etc and of course these are things which actually impact how or you know ad tech works and how you can do personalized um advertising yeah so that's that's really important um uh, data i think for um uh, marketers to really get their heads around now on the flip side the research also showed that consumers are more than happy to share data um direct to a business uh, in return for some sort of value. And they're very happy for you to actually sh- uh, then personalize your marketing off that data that they shared directly with you. And the key word here is directly, right? You're not snooping on them. You're not dropping a cookie on them, trying to find out you know, their web behavior and then personalize off that. You're not buying third-party data or renting data you know, from one of my, uh, Facebook's many uh, third-party data providers, which Facebook has been shutting down um, because of privacy uh, issues, you've asked that data directly from a consumer uh, about their motivations, their desires, their interests, uh, what they, you know, what their preferences are, and then you're personalising your marketing off the back of that. Um, we saw that was a majority of consumers that were very, very happy uh, to provide data directly to you as a as a consumer, and I I, I sometimes kind of talk about this in terms of just manners. So if you think about it, if you, you know, we all want to be good neighbors, right, to, to the folks on our street. 
if you have a new, you know, couple move into uh, the street, um, you know, you want to you want to be a good neighbor and you want to you know get on with them. What you don't do is put spy cameras through their window and a tracking bug under their car to learn about them before <laughs> you go around and introduce yourself. I think that's generally good advice. Yeah, exactly. You know, what do you do? Well, you probably, you know, get some food and, uh, you know, a bottle of wine, knock on the door and uh, and introduce yourself. And interestingly, in real life, we quite often start off those relationships with that value exchange. And I think what we're seeing in marketing is that, you know, those values of, of, of manners are now entering the digital uh, um, uh, environment and, and, you know, marketers are expected behind, you know, to um, uh, ensure that they comply with a, a, a common decency, I think. And that's really what we're seeing. Yeah. Better late than never, right? Yeah, exactly. Better late than never. And, you know, look, I, it's not it's not that marketers were necessarily um, doing anything wrong. I think we all got swept up with what was possible, right? What was possible. Yeah, exactly. And I think we, you know, many of us just made a mistake on just really questioning you know, the difference between behavior on digital channels and in the real world yeah. and actually what kind of decency needs to be mapped across between the two. There's that saying that keeps uh, coming up, uh, that keeps coming up these last, you know, uh, I don't know, 12 to 18 months, which is the most authentic brands are going to win out, right? Authenticity wins in this new kind of marketing environment. A hundred percent. And, you know, if you, if you actually think about, well, consumers prefer that direct relationship with you as a brand versus, you know, going through an intermediary like Facebook and Google, that was really brought out, brought out by how consumers actually wanted to get um, offers uh, in order to tempt them to make purchases. And in our research, 73% of US consumers had actually made a purchase from email offers versus only 31% from a social media ad uh, and only 20, 26% from a banner ad. I think it's so funny the way the evolution uh, of email has gone, right? And in the beginning, it was so novel. I've talked about this here on the, the show before. You know, in the beginning, email was novel and then it was, you know, then it was a nightmare. Nobody wanted to get emails, you know, and uh, and now it's it's the most desired. It's the most trusted uh, of all the, the lines of communication that um, that it is the most direct way and the, and the easiest way and the most efficient way. And I, and I think we've we've seen an amplification of that with COVID nineteen. Have you? Um, which, is, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah, we we, we have. You know, there there. It's not saying there's all been smooth sailing because it hasn't. Because in the um, panic around COVID nineteen, and the fact that businesses very quickly had to respond to what was happening, had to you know shut um, establishments, but had to keep communication lines, had to explain the changes that were going on in their business, what we saw was a giant rush for every, you know, business uh, uh, under the sun to start sending out communications via email that were entitled COVID-19 on the subject line. Yeah. Right. And basically all that did was uh, initially mean that um, it tripped all of the normal kind of spam uh, filters that, that are out there with these, all these new emails being sent out with COVID-19 that were being sent en masse to everybody in the database with no kind of filtering or no thought. And of course, that's, you know, if any email marketer would, would tell you, that's that's the last thing yeah. that you want to do. But, you know, somewhat understandably, everybody was like, oh, no, panic, let's send out big COVID-19 emails. 
you know, to our entire uh, our da- entire database, and you know that obviously caused deliver caused deliverability issues, which you know we needed to address with uh, with customers. But once folks actually figured that out and we start started to maintain the normal kind of rules around how you actually you know in terms of best practice deliver your email messages, what we've seen is email have um, a real increase uh, in. Uh, the the volume and the use case for establishing communications direct to consumers, and also we've seen SMS interestingly as well uh, have a, have an uptick yeah. uh, as a as a channel to have that kind of direct notification uh, with consumers. It's funny. It's still the uh, it's still the frontier, right? It's it's still people are so nervous about getting uh, really getting started with that because they don't know how people are gonna how people are gonna react. Yeah, and I think what what the crisis has actually uh, sort of um, enabled is it basically said that you know as long as your communication is 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 a value value we're more than happy to to have it via SMS um, as well as uh, email. Whereas in the past, sometimes SMS could seen as a bit kind of intrusive. Um, we haven't seen that, and actually, markers have been using it as a as an interesting channel to connect to the consumers. I think that's a really important point. I'm I'm really curious to see what's going to happen over the next couple of years, uh, specifically with SMS. And I felt that uh, long before the the shutdown. Um, so you brought up something really interesting right there, and you talked about value, right? That it was all about uh, as long as the communication had value, that people were open to it. So, so speak to a, that a little bit, because that's something I'm a big proponent of. Uh, the clients that I work with here in New York City, uh, I, I try to really hammer that home. It's something we talk about over and over again uh, on this podcast. Um, so talk to me about how that kind of weaves its way into your work. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of kind of what we think about value, it should be worth stating that um, Cheetah Digital believes wholeheartedly in um, value exchange uh, marketing, that we're in actually a value exchange economy. And actually, COVID-19 has just amplified that. Um, And so if you really think about it, every consumer is um, exposed to about 5,000 brand messages a day. Um, as we are wandering through normal life, obviously not necessarily locked down, uh, you know, in the confines of our own four walls at home, but actually out there in real life, um, normally walking around, there'll be 5,000 brand messages through adverts um, uh, on social media, billboards, you know, uh, tube train ads, whatever. It's about 5,000 a day. And so really, one has to think about how do you make the cut through with just that sheer volume of advertising that is out there. Um, the reality is any consumer, there is this moment um, of decision when they actually are inspired by an advert or a brand message you put out there. The, the uh, you know, marketing is always being driven from these moments of inspiration. That's not going to change. Really good advertising, you know, has to be a way to inspire uh, consumers and capture attention, but at the, between the moment of uh, inspiration and the kind of moment of taking action, there is this moment of decision, which is what's in it for me. You know, why should I take that action that that marketer wants me to take with their advert, their, their email, their brand message? And that comes down to consumers really looking at what's in it for them. And, and we believe that marketers are going to have to differentiate more moving forward in terms of that value exchange between uh, the the business and the consumer in order for it to have cut through across those 5,000 messages that are out there from other brands, um, but also because we are in a 
are going to be, you know, for some time now in a recessionary environment. And if you if you look at what happens to consumer behaviours in recessions with job insecurity and all the rest of it, people look for value more than they did uh, in uh, uh, periods of growth. Um, and so the number of promotions that are going to be uh, delivered by business owners to tempt people back into restaurants, to tempt them to make purchases online, whatever it may be, is going to increase. It does in every recession. Um, and that's why we think loyalty is going to be uh, a much more important thing for customers uh, to uh, uh, business owners to think about moving forward uh, in a recessionary environment. And the reason why is because loyalty programs offer that uh, construct between consumer and brand for how value is gained um, for repeat purchases, for incentivizing engagement, incentivizing purchases, uh, etc. Um, and so loyalty programs, we think, are going to be much, much more important in this recessionary period. And the research that we did with e-consultancy uh, really bore that out. And so um, loyalty is definitely on the rise in the US. Almost as nine times as many US consumers are planning to participate in loyalty programs in 2020 than those planning to reduce participation. And so I think, you know, that clearly backs up the point that people are going to be looking for value. So then, uh, so then talk to me about loyalty a little bit, because obviously, you know, again, like the, the business cards in the fishbowl, you know, we used to, when I was a kid, we, uh, we had a pizza place down the street and on the corner of the pizza box was a little, you know, little coupon to be cut out and you saved up 10 of those and you turn them in for a free pizza. Um, you know, so it, it was had its roots all the way back into, into that sort of thing where you get little punch cards or whatever. And we've largely adopted those for digital. Um, and once the novelty has worn off, uh, it kind of slides away. But where do you see the future of loyalty, right? If we're taking that to the next level, what does that look like? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things about loyalty which I think are worth stressing uh, in terms of what's happening next. So loyalty, you know, as you say, has always had its roots in kind of that you know points for purchases uh, type mentality. You know, by by nine you get the tenth one free. You know that kind of um, activity. Right. And I think as we move into a recessionary period that's not going to go away. You know, people are going to be looking for the value of, of, of why I should come back, why I should purchase from you. You know, that, that, those, those things aren't going to disappear. In fact, they're going to be amplified. What needs to happen, though, is the offers that are being made to consumers need to be done based on what we know about consumer, uh, their preferences, their desires, their interests, rather than just blanket offers if we're going to get the best return. So to your pizza example, there's no point doing an offer on, you know, the pepperoni pizza or the meat feast pizza and sending that out to uh, everybody, including audiences that never have meat on their pizzas and always go for the vegetarian options, right? right? That's a very simple use case, but it's also a very powerful one. Offers need to be related to what a consumer actually may be tempted to take, you know, to, 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 to purchase or to take up. And so that requires loyalty offers to be driven from data. And so there are two parts to that. One is you need to look at what you know about consumers before you drive offers out to them. Um, companies are doing that based on, you know, 
looking at the data from POS systems, uh, from you know what people are doing as they interact online uh, through uh, the uh, e-commerce platforms if they have online ordering, you know, through to looking at what people look at when they're on the website, for example. So there's many different ways you can learn about a consumer that isn't snooping on them, that isn't, you know, um, buying third-party data lists. It's just looking at how that consumer interacts with you on the channels that you have that direct uh, engagement. That's that's one way. The second way is um, going back to the fishbowl uh, idea, mm. which is really you can just ask customers, right? So, you know, if uh, uh, folks, uh, if you do a... a competition you know for mother's day for example have a few questions in that competition as part of uh, answering which ask people about you know how they rate your menu for example what they like what they don't like simple things like that allow you to get the information that you need to trigger personalized uh, offers um, and 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 i think that that ability to run interactive experiences to ask people directly about their behaviors their motivations their desires their interests and personalize that uh, 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 personalized offers off that is just as important as actually finding out about you know what they've purchased before and looking at the first party data you have about them. Yeah, this is this is really really great stuff. So then, uh, a small business owner, right? Somebody that runs a restaurant and they're up to their ear. I mean, this is so often what you find with small business owners is that they spend so much time working in their business, they have uh, little time or energy to uh, to consider working on their business. Um, but then how does somebody get started with that if they're, you know, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week to uh, just to keep the lights on, uh, and maybe not necessarily right during this crisis time, but just in general as they're coming out of this, how do you begin uh, with that data collection? Is it just something as simple as sending a quiz, uh, kind of like a, a survey kind of thing to uh, to audiences to to get to know each individual person better. Yeah. So first, firstly, I would say that um, one has to appreciate that data, um, your customer data, is pretty much your business long term. And so, for a, any small business out there, starting um, from scratch to think about every single engagement that I have with a customer, what's my opportunity? to actually either turn them from an unknown customer into a known customer, i.e. into my marketing database, but also to learn a little bit more about them in order for me to get to know my customers better is just solid marketing practice and is no different really from that corner store operator that was very successful because he got to know his community really, really well uh, by talking to them a lot. It's, it's no real difference, obviously. We don't have all the time to talk to every customer, so we need to be thinking about kind of what, how can we do that um, in a way that is not so impactful of the business owner's time. And so simple examples of things like that would be, yeah, most restaurants these days have a Facebook page, for example. You know, doing a, a, a monthly competition uh, to get their audience to, um, you know, win a, a, a meal or whatever it may be, uh, uh, for a chance to you know answer a few questions and also share that contest with their friends on social media, so there's some amplification, is a very sensible thing uh, to to do. As an example, um, you know, getting uh, a, a QR code uh, printed out on a, a, a on a little poster or a bit of paper that has that you have in the restaurant for people to um, you know tell you. Uh, a bit about how they rated your menu and what they would like to see 
from the evolution of that menu, for example, is another thing that you can do. I mean, everyone has got smartphones in their pockets pretty much these days. Right. Uh, and they've all got inbuilt um, QR code readers on them. So it's very simple to convert foot traffic in a restaurant uh, online to an experience that you very quickly spun up that can ask uh, questions and get feedback uh, from consumers. So they're two very simple examples that we uh, see uh, customers uh, do. Now, these experiences on platforms like Tutor Digital and others, you know, these days it's very simple to spin these things up. It can be done uh, in a, a very simple, simply in you know an hour or so, and then you can have that experience, you know, running every month. Uh, collecting data from uh, consumers. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to be particularly complex. It can be very, relatively simple tactics that allow you to, to build out your, your customer database. So then, um, so then tell me, I mean, is there a case study you can point to? Is there a, a client that you worked with, um, a small business um, or, or a small restaurant group that you can, um, you can give as an example of, uh, you know, some simple things that, that you guys did with them and for them uh, to help put some of this stuff into practice and, and kind of what that uh, translated to on the back end? Yeah, so I'll give you I'll give you an example of a, of a business in the restaurant space that I think is doing very well. It's not small business at the group level, but obviously the franchises can be very small. Um, and it's the totality of what they're doing across franchises and the group, which is what I think is very, very interesting. So um, uh, Bloomin' Brands, uh, uh, which obviously have the out, Outback and a whole bunch of different uh, brands, massive organization at the group level. I mean, we're talking $4 billion, but obviously, you know, down at the franchise level, down at the individual store level, you have very different uh, size operations. Uh, and I think they are an interesting use case because they were able to triple their offline, um, oh, sorry, their off-premise sales um, by 300% in a matter of weeks by really pivoting very, very quickly to try and keep all of their restaurants open. And I'm thrilled to say that as of uh, today, they still haven't made any full-time staff redundant or any um, hourly staff uh, redundant, haven't furloughed anybody. Um, And the way they've been able to do that is by moving very, very quickly to accelerate the infrastructure and the setup that they already had to do online ordering, um, which had been around for a little while. So most of the restaurants had some ability to do uh, pickup, um, and they'd been working on that a little bit, and they'd had an online ordering process uh, set up. Um, And really what has happened in COVID-19 is they've seen a massive acceleration uh, of that process. And so at the heart of what they're doing is actually the ability to learn about their customers and to personalize offers to their customers to get them to take up you know the delivery the or the curbside pickup uh, offerings that they had um, and to do that well they needed to make sure that the offers were personalized off the data that they had around uh, customers and so that goes back to thinking about the preferences of individuals and then tempting them with offers uh, for these services that were going on that was going to have uh, a higher likelihood of success. And the fact that they managed to triple their um, overall business on online and, and curbside across all of their um, uh, operations and their franchises, I think is um, an extremely uh, good uh, result. Um, where, where I think it is is very, very interesting is actually when they looked at the type of people that were coming in 
uh, to their online channels and ordering uh, delivery and pickup wasn't actually the same audience as the people that were coming into the restaurant on a Friday night and having a family meal. Um, that becomes quite interesting because it, it points us to what businesses might do in the recovery period. Yeah, for sure. You know, so in the recovery period, you don't want to lose that new audience that you've built out online, but you also want to tempt people back into the restaurant that you're at, you, you, you're uh, existing customers that were were having the, the the family meal on a Friday night, which gives us uh, an opportunity to have additive revenue in the recovery period. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I keep thinking about this in a in a couple of different phases. You know, right now we're in crisis mode, which is just most restaurants have either closed or they've pivoted to a whole new model. Meaning uh, they used to be a sit down restaurant and now they've become a takeout restaurant. Um, and then the next phase is going to be when markets are able to open slowly and operate at a, you know, 30% capacity or 50% capacity. You know, how do you survive that period? Um, and I don't know, that's a that's a really treacherous area uh, as I start thinking about the life of a restaurant. Um, but then on that, you know, that the third phase, which is when you're back up and running at 100%, how do you apply what you've learned during the crisis and during that, that midsection uh, to then again, carve out even more business. Like you said, I think it's an interesting point that um, that the people who are taking up delivery and, and pickup uh, are in many ways a whole different uh, a whole different audience. It's a whole uh, new revenue stream. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we'll see some businesses will do very well at maintaining that new audience and, and may be able to tempt them to kind of cross-fertilize, as it were. So, you know, that new online audience tempting them into the restaurant uh you know on a friday night to have a meal how does that work because the 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 other interesting thing is when you take people like blooming brands they knew that before covid19 the most valuable customers were the ones that were in you know physical physically coming to the restaurant uh for and sitting down having the covers as well as doing the online ordering that was the top top uh, segment of their audience base they were driving the most money from. So if you're able to convert that new online audience into you know regular uh, folks turning up at the restaurant, you're going to put them into that that highest segment of, of value, which is obviously the goal. Right. So then what? Um, so then what else can people be doing right now uh, to come out of this? Because again, I've been speaking about it a lot here on the podcast uh, with restaurateurs and you know other people that I know in the industry, but they all want to know. Uh, because they've gotten to the point now where they're just kind of staying, you know, their, their heads right above water during this crisis and they're just looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but I think there's got to be something bigger and better on the backside of this. I always talk about restaurants, how they've got, um, we run with such narrow profit margins. Everyone says, oh, I just can't wait to return back to normal. And I keep saying, why would you want to return to that normal where a profitable restaurant is operating at 5% you know, profit over the course of the year, you know, a place that's killing it is at 10 or 12%, maybe. Uh, why would you want to return to that place? And so how can places, uh, what can people be doing now to get themselves uh, in the right headspace to put themselves in a, in a place to succeed on the backside to be even better, to increase five to 10% or 15 or 20%? Well, I think for me, it's the ability to operate on across multiple different uh, business models, because one of the things around COVID-19 that I think is um, that we all need to be at least cognizant of, I, I call it the acceleration of digital transformation, really, is really what has occurred 
Um, so, you know, I was talking to the chief customer officer of, of Blooming Brands and uh, Michael Stutz, and he was t- he was saying that, you know, really it's, it you know, five years worth of digital transformation has, has basically happened, you know, in a matter of weeks, right. which I think is a really interesting way to, to put it. You know, the restaurant industry was already undergoing uh, a, a digital transformation of sorts, you know, had the uh, significant growth of things like um, Grubhub and other delivery services meant that, you know, uh, the food service industry as a whole was starting to adapt and, and uh, create new uh, revenue lines uh, with delivery uh, models. I think what we've uh, seen is that overnight, you know, it's all 100% delivery or 100% pickup. And so the off-premise sales have been the, the lifeline for many industries. Uh, sorry, for many businesses. I don't think we're going to go back to 100% normal anyhow. Um, just like in the retail uh, space, we had about in the US, about 12 to 14% of all sales was happening online. Suddenly, you've basically moved the entire population to the only you know way that you can get goods and products and services is online. And so there's a whole swathe of people that might not have been used to online ordering and online business models and subscription models or the rest of it that have had to embrace that in a very, very quick amount of time. And I don't think everybody's going to go back to exactly the way it was before. I, for example, have set up some subscription businesses uh, to get uh, meat and fresh produce directly from farmers and to cut out the middleman supermarkets because they were having delivery problems and it was just easier to go direct to source and, you know, arguably significantly better um, uh, food and produce from, from actually doing that. So I think when you, you think about the restaurant business, I think the same is going to happen. I think more people are used to re- ordering uh, uh, pickup or delivery from restaurants in their local area than they might have been before. So the question is, how do we make sure as business owners that we can actually expand our revenue lines across not just the physical, uh, but also the online uh, and the, uh, the pickup and the delivery. That is, going, I think, going to give people more opportunities to have higher um, profit margins. Yeah, I, I find myself thinking about this a lot, about how can you diversify your revenue streams. And I think a lot of restaurants were just stuck in that one model. We've got a great restaurant. We, we provide a, you know, a great experience here. And I think a lot of restaurants on the backside of this are going to be, I always say they're going to be running side businesses out their back door as they should. Yes. Yes. Agreed. I mean, one very practical uh, example from yesterday is um, Mother's Day. uh, I went and got some uh, food from a local uh, restaurant, um, you know, and spent 120 bucks on a on a meal. You know, normally restaurant delivery stuff for me has has been on the um, cheaper side of the business space, you know, pizzas right. and that type of stuff. Whereas now in COVID-19, I'm ordering from higher end restaurants, uh, the delivery service. And because on some of them, it's done really, really well. I don't yep. think that's something that I'm necessarily going to shy away from, even when we go back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a friend who's, uh, who's running a restaurant right now and they've started doing, um, either it's not prepared food, but it's like half prepared or, uh, or prepped. So everything's right. all prepped, right? So the, the chicken's all seasoned. It's been brined. It's been stuffed. It's all, you know, uh, you know, wrapped up with the twine. And all you got to do is throw it in a roasting pan. And they've got the directions for how to finish it in the oven. 
Um, same thing with some of the, you know, the other side dishes and all that. So you basically get a, you know, home cooked meal that where all these, you know, uh, fancy chefs have prepared everything and they've, they've made the last step idiot proof for you. Um, I think about, I, I saw him rolling that out and I just thought that's genius. Yeah. I mean, the, Fogo de Shower has done exactly the same thing. And I think, I think there was, you know, there was already a number of um, digital services uh, that were already doing that. And I think that's a, has got a long, long yeah. way to go. I think that's a really interesting business model and I can see that succeeding. Well, it's always the, uh, the argument you hear about um, some of those uh, home meal kit uh, services like Blue Apron and yes. HelloFresh. It's certainly been uh, been my hesitation. We used it for a while, but they said it took 30 minutes to prep and it was always 45 to 60 minutes. And I just thought, well, I don't have an hour to prep this and then 20 minutes in the oven. I got, I got a half an hour to make it. And so these guys have really perfected this. Again, this one little restaurant uh, has perfected and said, hey, no, no. So we did all that stuff, that stuff that you know, everybody said would take a half an hour. We did that. It actually took more than a half hour. You're right. We did it. And all you got to do now is throw it in the oven and, uh, and you know, finish it up. And, uh, I, and I think that's perfect. You want to have the ability to take it out of the oven, to turn to your significant other and pretend that you you actually did it from scratch. Totally. And is everyone going <laughs> to do it? Yeah, I think it's interesting because is everyone going to take advantage of this? Because it wasn't cheap. And so certainly not everyone's going to do it. But I think there's a there's definitely an opportunity on a, you know, late on a Friday night. You're like, I don't feel like going to a restaurant and I want something better than just, you know, pizza. So l- let's do this. I think it's I think it's interesting. Tell me. So you're out there in Denver and, and kind of because I imagine you're you're much like me where I can't go into a business and not see you know, the nuts and bolts of it. I can't see, you know, I can't not see how they're doing it. And so as I look around at other restaurants here in New York City, in Brooklyn, where I live, um, I can't help but see what they're doing well and what they're not doing well. And and I've talked about that a lot on the show. I'm the first one to say, just like I just did now with this place called Amani's, like I, I love what they're doing. Um, so what are you seeing in Denver, just in your observations? Um, what are you seeing most places doing? And what are you seeing... Uh, where places are really succeeding, where they're doing something different. Yeah, it really comes down to which restaurants are communicating uh, most effectively about how they are keeping consumers safe um, with the preparation of the food, the delivery experience or the pickup experience. uh, And I think as lockdown measures ease with their social distancing precautions uh, in restaurants. I think that is absolutely key. And if you want any kind of proof of that, going onto a platform like nextdoor.com and seeing how consumers in your local area are talking about restaurants is 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 where the proof is. Um, you know, we, we can see restaurants that are able to show and communicate very, very clearly on all of the precautions that they're taking. They're the ones that consumers are gravitating to for curbside, for pickup. And I think they will be the ones that consumers will gravitate to when um, restrictions are lift and you're able to participate uh, in the restaurant uh, physically with uh, social distancing. So I think communication is absolutely everything. I uh, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I'm really uh, grateful that you carved out this uh, this chunk to, to give us. Um, so I'll I'll start wrapping up with a, just a couple of things that I'm really curious about. What um, so what do you uh, what are you kind of predicting for the next three months, the next six months, the next twelve months, um, both in kind of how we're going to come back and how uh, how businesses can and should be responding to all this. 
Yeah, it, it's a it's a, that's certainly a tough question because it, it requires a, a crystal ball. I think. Yeah, of course. You know, which uh, which is um, something I don't yet have. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to have one, but uh, I don't yet have. <laughs> um, and I, I, th- I, my personal belief is that if you think about kind of uh, how we've been so far with the precautions that have been taken, with the lockdown measures, and with the volume of the spread of the virus in different places. I think we're going to enter into a period for the next three months, which is a little bit cat and mouse. So I think some places restrictions are going to be uh, opened up. We may be able to move back to normal uh, at some pace. Uh, but there are going to be, I believe, uh, areas where the virus is going to um uh, kick back in in terms of the spread rates and they're going to have to bring down restrictions. I think for the next three months, it's all going to be cat and mouse. Right. That's, that is very, very difficult for businesses to manage uh, through. I 100% believe that. So for, for now, I would be recommending that restaurant businesses just double down on those pickup and those delivery business models and very, very clear communication about how they're keeping you safe and that it's no more risky than, uh, you know, if you were to prepare the food at home. Um, I don't see that going away anytime uh, soon. I think there is a opportunity, there is a chance that when we talk six months from now, that we are entering into a very different phase of recovery because of just the sheer volume of vaccine uh, candidates that are out there that are already in human trials. So I am actually quite positive for the medium term, um, but I think the short term, the near term, uh, is kind of fraught with uh, you know unknowns. And I and I you know if I was a business owner, a restaurant owner, I'd be absolutely doubling down on on delivery and uh, and, and curbside pickup models for now. And so uh, here's the other piece to that because there's still room and time to continue innovating, right? Like, yes. Because if people pivoted, right, they were a sit-down restaurant and they've pivoted to a delivery model and that's working or only working so well, there's nothing to say you can't pivot again and offer a different service. There's This is not going to go away in a month that, that you still, to iterate and, and create something else for the next three months, six months, nine months or beyond um, is not out of the, the realm of possibility and and good advice or oh, without a doubt because the, I'll come back to the point we made at the beginning of the uh, podcast which is that actually COVID-19 is really just this digital acceleration you know that, that's what's happened uh, for, for most businesses and that isn't going to go away so the ability to think about things like you know as we talked about having that fully prepped meal you know maybe offering that as a subscription model so that you know people know they always have their Tuesday and their Thursday night meals uh, in this fully prep yeah. Those types of things, I think, are going to be more important than ever. And so, you know, subscription models, looking at innovation in terms of how the food is prepped and delivered, those types of things uh, I would be recommending everybody to do. Yeah. And then in the long term, right? So we're looking 12 months, 24 months out when we've hopefully put all this behind us. You know, we, we talked a little bit about this, obviously, you know, we talked about uh, diversifying revenue streams and all of that. Um, I, I can't help but think, uh, you know, again, why would we want to return to this the, the same normal that we had, this 4% profit? <laughs> it's like, well, right. we're doing a lot of work to make 4% profit or 6% profit. Um, right. Like, I, there's got to be something else on the, on the backside of this. And I'm curious to hear, you know, again, the, the long-term 
Um, how, how do we use loyalty and, and again, audience engagement and all of that to, to create something better? Well, pre- predictability of revenue uh, is is a big thing that can be helped with loyalty programs. So, you know, ultimately what we want is our businesses, our restaurants to be operating at full capacity across a variety of different new uh, business models. So the in, you know, the physical in restaurant experience, the curbside uh, pickup, uh, the uh, delivery models, uh, and potentially, you know, innovating in some new ways, such as subscription models. I think if we look at all of those opportunities for restaurant owners, and if they're able to use data uh, as a way that allows them to increase the relationship uh, that they have with customers to get a higher customer lifetime value so that they're all doing more with each restaurant, that has to be the way forward. So loyalty, data, and a variety of business models embracing online has to be the future. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting because so many restaurant owners know their customers so well. You know, they know them to see them and and to be there in the in the restaurant. It's the hospitality industry. They're you know they're hospitable and they take care of people so well. Uh, but translating that into the digital space, I think, is something that I've certainly seen people be resistant to. Um, and you're saying that's really the way forward. That's the only way forward. Yeah, you have to use data to replace the personal touch. That's that's the reality. Right. Uh, what other uh, loyalty models uh, do you see? I mean, what is it that gets people to come back? So if it's buy nine, get the 10th for free, uh, that's one. W- what else are you seeing? So good question. Um, and my answer would probably be somewhat dependent on... Um, how deep a recessionary period we go through. So as I, as I said earlier, you know, the worse the economy, the more people look for value. And so really just getting very, very appropriate, you know, good deals to people based on what they actually like and what you know about them is going to be very important. But long term, loyalty can't just be that. It can't just be a mechanism to throw offers out because, you know, ultimately, a loyalty program should be a way of increasing loyalty. Right. Um, that's a different question to a way of actually getting someone to come back, right, into your restaurant. That yeah, right. doesn't necessarily equate to loyalty. So loyalty programs are starting to evolve from just, you know, buy, buy nine, get the 10th one uh, free, to, hey, you know, get 10% off if you... Uh, answer these questions about kind of what you think about my proposed new menu that's coming up. And, um, you know, you share a good review uh, for me on social, you know, for example. Right. It it needs to be about emotional loyalty, which is really, you know, can we um, can we incent engagement, not just purchases? If you can do that, then, um, you know, you have an opportunity to, to to really get closer to your customers um, in the way that you do when you you know you meet people face to face in the restaurant. Right, right. I think that's a really great distinction. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. I'm glad you had the opportunity to share that. Um, I guess before I let you go, tell uh, tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and Cheetah Digital and the experiences and, and all of that. Yeah. So um, come to cheetahdigital.com. Uh, to our website, there is a uh, blog section uh, there. Um, uh, there is a resources section as well on the main nav of the website where you can learn a lot more about um, 
some of the topics we've talked about today, you can get some of the research that I've been talking about, download that for free, which is an interesting read. You can learn about how people are doing loyalty programs in the restaurant space, what's working, uh, what isn't. Uh, there's the Thinking Caps podcast where we actually talk a lot about these subjects as well uh, and invite customers on to uh, talk about their experiences. So lots and lots of resources. Come to the website, learn about uh, anything, and you know you can contact us from there if anything is of interest. Perfect. We'll obviously share the uh, the links there in the show notes. Uh, Richard, I appreciate you taking time out of uh, what must be very busy days uh, these days. So thank you so much. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of this interview with Richard Jones of Cheetah Digital. Uh, I think he's got a lot of great insights to share, uh, an interesting perspective to be sure, uh, especially as all of us are navigating this COVID-19 shutdown. Uh, Go visit his website. uh, Tons of resources there. Again, the link is in the show notes. Uh, If you like this show, Restaurant Strategy, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. And of course, make sure you're sharing these episodes with the people you work with. Changing the culture in your restaurant begins when you start letting people in, when you show them the kinds of things you're thinking about. Uh, Again, I know things are crazy right now, but please stay safe, stay sane, and stay creative. I appreciate all of you being here, and I will see you again next week.